the passage tell us about God? This will be followed by the heart, which answers the question about emotions or feelings that can lead to the formation of our convictions. Thirdly, the outline by which I will present the message has everything to do with the hands. Three applications or action plans that may be calling us to do or obey based on the insights we will discover in the passage. So I've been using this method in leading my home group, our home group, for more than a year now. And I discovered a key underlying principle for this methodology, which is our beliefs determine our actions. Now let me repeat that. Our beliefs determine our actions or our behavior. Whatever we are persuaded to believe in will eventually sink into our hearts and become convictions. Those convictions will subsequently, will subsequently guide or dictate how we will act or behave. For example, if I resolved in my mind to believe that Jesus is Lord of my life, then obedience to his commandments is a manifestation of that conviction in my heart. Does that make sense? That's why our beliefs are very important. Head, heart, and hands. Let's dive in. My first point is for us from the passage is for us to make room to recognize. Verse 10 of our passage says that he, Jesus, came into the world and although the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Now, if you think about it, it sounded like Jesus came incognito and was never recognized by the world that was made through him. Even God's own people, the Jews, failed to recognize him. So how could that be? Now, before I answer that, it helps to know that the Greek word used for recognize, ginosko, to know in this context, actually refers to more than mere intellectual rejection or willful refusal of someone or something. It refers first and foremost to rejecting Jesus' claim of equality with God and his revelation of the Father through his words and through his miraculous signs. So the basic sin in John's gospel is failure to know and believe in Jesus. So what was the reason for such blindness by the people during that time? In its historical and cultural context, two things can be identified. First, it is the Greeks' love for wisdom, philosophy. Second, it's the Jewish love for the works, the law. Because beneath the Greeks' love of wisdom and the Jewish love for works lurks the tendency to define the goal of human existence in what can be achieved rather than what can be received. Let me repeat that. Between those two lurks this tendency to define the goal of human existence in terms of what is achieved rather than what is received. They could not see the light standing before them because they were busy and prideful on the notion of trying to manufacture the goal of human existence in their minds as they value wisdom for the Greeks and in their temples as they value their works and their sacrifices 
in the temple for the Jews. Now, isn't this a reality we still see today in our time? There are parallels to it. We see this in worldly philosophical ideologies like secular humanism that rejects all forms of religious faith and worship. We also see this in false religions that seek to achieve God's favor or even eternal life through accomplishments and through good works, but not grace. Now for them, the ultimate goal of human existence can be achieved, but not received. Think about it. One's ultimate destiny can be achieved by one's own efforts. This prideful spirit that relies on the self is what blinds people from recognizing who Jesus really is. You know, many people today have their own ideas about who Jesus is. Some people think that he was merely a prophet or a good teacher who taught us how to live life. Even those who claim to be Christians have inaccurate views of him because they haven't based their perceptions on the comprehensive truth of scripture. So who is he? And what does scripture say about him? Unlike Matthew and Luke, John's gospel provides an introduction of Jesus that traces back his origins from eternity past. His prologue was written in such a profound way that readers in our time may have difficulty grasping unless we get an idea of the context in the Jewish or Greek audience that John wrote to. And here's what John has to say in his prologue, John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Now in John's time, the word, or logos in Greek, conveys the underlying concept or idea of divine self-expression or of divine speech. Thus, the word may therefore be depicted as God's effective speech or his self-expression. John uses the word in his prologue in reference to Jesus as God's divine self-expression. And so we can read it this way. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Jesus was with God in the beginning. Now this implies three essential truths on who Jesus is. First, his pre-existence before time. In the beginning was the word. Jesus was there before time began. Second, his unity with the Godhead. And the word was with God. Jesus and the Father are one. And third, his deity or his divinity and the word was God. Being one with the Father also means Jesus is God. Again, if you jump to verse 18, you'll see that John once more uh, offers that uh, explicitly the, the lordship and the godship of Jesus Christ when he says in there, no one has ever seen God but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. 
here he explicitly says, says that the one and only son, Jesus, is himself God. Now, isn't that a statement of his deity so plain and so simple enough to understand? Let me summarize it in three words. Jesus is God. The biblical argument for Jesus' deity is clear, and I will be citing more of it as we go along. The only way it takes for a non-believer to recognize this truth is openness. Openness, however, requires humility. Humanity struggles with that because by nature, we are prideful. A prideful spirit is what blinds people to the truth of who Jesus really is. Let us therefore make room to recognize Jesus for who he is. You know, once we have a good grasp of who he is, there's this awful sense of reverential fear and honor for his majesty that brings us to our knees and humbles us when we realize how unworthy we are and how lowly our estate actually is when compared to him. Second point I want to make is we are to make room to receive. A while back, I mentioned that people in John's time had the tendency to define the goal of human existence in terms of what is achieved rather than what is received. On the contrary, scripture teaches that we can define the goal of our existence in terms of what we can receive from God rather than what we can achieve on our own. God is offering mankind his greatest gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. However, for us to avail of this most precious gift, we need to receive it. Unless we receive it, we won't enjoy it or every benefit that comes with it. Now in our passage, John cited that there were those who did not receive him, even those who were his own that were expected to receive him. Yet to those who did, as mentioned in verse 12, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Thus, the gift God intends to give is conditional upon us receiving Jesus and believing in his name for us to benefit from it. Now, what does that mean in this context? Does it simply mean agreeing to who Jesus is? Well, it goes way beyond that. To receive him means, as the verse would indicate, is to believe in his name. The term believe in his name can only be found in the writings of the Apostle John. To believe in the person's name is to believe in the person because the name stands for the person. It implies the acceptance of Jesus to the full extent of his revelation. The phrase to believe in Jesus' name may place a particular emphasis on the fact that in order to believe in Jesus, one must believe that Jesus bears the divine name. This understanding of what it is to believe in his name is what gives us believers the right to be a child of God. Now we see this similarity in how the Apostle Paul wrote about God's gift of salvation for those who will believe. In Romans 10, 9 to 10, he says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Paul makes it clear that salvation involves inward belief with your heart as well as outward confession with your mouth. Now when John wrote his gospel, he explicitly tells his purpose for writing and he makes the case for his readers to receive the word and believe in his name. Let me read to you his purpose which is found in chapter 20 verses 30 to 31. It says in there, Jesus performed many signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, if you go just five verses before John wrote this purpose, you'll find one more notable account after Jesus' resurrection that argues for who Jesus really is. Let me read that for you. John chapter 20, 24 to 29. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where, his, where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out to your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now notice how Thomas responded to Jesus when he appeared to him. Rather than examine the evidence, he responds in worship, my Lord and my God, Dominus et Deus in Latin. You know, remarkably, at the time when John wrote this gospel, the same designation in Latin, Dominus et Deus, was applied to the Roman emperor, Domitian. It was the formal mode of address when one spoke or would like to seek his audience uh, for the Roman emperor. So, the countercultural message of John here is clear. Jesus, not the Roman emperor, is Lord and God. He alone must be worshipped. Let us therefore cast away all doubt as to who Jesus is and receive him. Let us believe in his name by accepting Jesus to the full extent of his revelation in scripture that we, as John said, may be given the right to become the children of God. The third point, make room to renew and rejoice in him. Now, the final point that I discovered in our passage has to do with our faith walk after receiving and believing Jesus Christ. Verse 13 talks about our adoption to God's family. We are born of God. This miracle is known to us as our spiritual rebirth. It happens the moment we receive Jesus and ask him to come into our lives. Now, is there a way to describe this spiritual rebirth experience? Do you recall the time when you accepted Jesus to come into your life? 
So when this miracle took place in our minds, in our heads, by believing, and in our hearts by receiving, the Holy Spirit actually began his work in our lives through his indwelling presence. You know, I love the simplicity and depth of how theologian uh, by the name Millard Erickson described the born-again experience. He wrote, and I quote, the new birth is not felt when it occurs. It will rather establish its presence by producing a new sensitivity to spiritual things, a new direction in life, and an increasing ability to obey God. As we advance in our faith walk after our spiritual rebirth, we will definitely encounter some pitfalls. It is during those times of trials and struggles that we should continue to make room to renew and rejoice in our position as a child of God. What do I mean by this? Let me talk about renew first. In Romans 12, 2, the Apostle Paul admonished his readers. He tells them, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Not conforming to the pattern of this world and being transformed by the renewal or the renewing of the mind is a result of believing in Jesus Christ. The word renew here also means regenerate or transformation from our old self into a new creation that seeks to be more like Christ. We use the word sanctification for this renewal or regeneration process. To renew or to be sanctified in the most simplistic and practical terms is to submit and surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in every aspect of our lives. Now that we are born of God, we must make room in our hearts for the renewal process to work. Otherwise, we will fail to experience the peace and joy that comes with victorious Christian living. You know, I used to smoke heavily and I struggled to quit. But before you judge me, that was BC, before Christ, okay? When I came to Christ, I started reading scripture and God made it clear to me that this unhealthy habit was not going to glorify him. And so within a week after that conviction was placed in my heart and by his grace, I, will, I was able to quit smoking and I have not smoked for 33 years now and counting. This miracle happened because God transformed me by the renewal of my mind as I yielded to his leading. May he alone be glorified. Lastly, we must make room to rejoice in him because of the Christmas story. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. God became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ for a time when he was here. The word dwelt here has connotations to the Old Testament understanding of tabernacle. It's like saying God tabernacled or pitched his tent among us when Jesus came. You know, it's mind boggling to think why the God of the universe would enter time and space and go from eternal to temporal from infinite to finite, from spiritual to physical. 
You know, King Solomon expressed the same mind-blowing sentiment and amazement when he pondered upon the idea of God going to dwell in the temple that he built. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27. Listen to what he says. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Solomon knew that no space was enough to contain God's presence. Yet, 930 years later, God's full exp expression of himself came in the flesh. And because of his love for us, God humbled himself and stooped down to our level so that we can be redeemed. The Christmas story did not end in Jesus' birth. It goes from the cradle to the cross to atone for our sins, from the grave to his resurrection as evidence that he has conquered death and lives forevermore. Thus we can rejoice because we who have believed and received him have been justified by grace and escaped that condemnation that we so deserve. We can rejoice because the ultimate goal of human existence can now be received, not achieved by our futile efforts. We can rejoice because his grace is sufficient to carry us through all the trials, difficulties, and challenges that we will encounter ahead. And yes, as the Apostle Paul encouraged the Corinthians in his second letter to them, listen to what he said. Therefore, he said, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. We can rejoice because through him, we have the blessed hope and assurance of eternal life. Now, as I conclude, I'd like to go back to your answer to the question, what is going on in my life that is robbing me of joy as a believer? Whatever your answer may be to that question, I'd like for you to consider <clears throat> these applications uh, connected to the message that I just shared and see if it would be helpful. First, remind yourself of who Jesus is and recall his faithfulness in your life. Jesus is our Lord and God. He is sovereign and knows what is best for us. You know, it's always good to look back and recall how he has been faithful to you in the past and during those difficult times, how he carried you through. Second, release your burdens to him and rest in his promises. In Matthew 11, Jesus invites us saying, cast your burdens upon me, those of you who are heavily laden. Come to me, all of you who are tired of carrying heavy yoke, for the yoke I will give you is easy and my burden is light. Come to me, Jesus said, and I will give you rest. To experience joy, we must release all our burdens to him. Let him take over and let him lead you. You can rest in the many promises he gave in scripture. Keep trusting him because he is faithful. Third, remind yourself of the gospel and reflect on your calling and position as a child of God. You know, when difficulties come, doubt may start to creep in and we could be downcast. 
preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of the good news of your redemption in Christ. Reflect on the fact that you are now a child of God. Talk to yourself. Tell yourself, as King David did in Psalm 42 verse 5, he says, Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your faith in God, for I will yet praise him, my Lord and my God. If necessary, make it audible. Verbalize it. Tell it to yourself. I do that. But I caution you, don't do it in public, okay? Don't. Lastly, number four, remind yourself of your eternal destiny and rejoice in that truth and hope. You know, I'm not sure if this will work for you, but a senior adult approached me this morning after I preached and she was blessed that uh, I think this point worked for her and she's going to apply it. But one of the things that really worked for me when I'm going through depressing times is reminding myself of my eternal destiny. You know, every time I pray after waking up, uh, I thank God and tell him this, Lord, I'm going through a lot lately and I'm feeling down. Yet I know that this too shall pass. Thank you that today I am one day closer to spending eternity with you. Think about that for a moment. Realize that every day we wake up, O oh believer, we are always one day closer to our ultimate goal, which is eternity, spending our eternal life with God. The truth of our eternal destination with Jesus is our blessed hope. Our beliefs determine our behavior. Whatever you may be going through right now that's robbing you of the spiritual fruit of joy, be assured that as you continue to make room to recognize and receive him, you can always rejoice. Amen? Amen. Put that smile on your face as we bow down our heads in prayer. Father, we are so thankful for your goodness. Thank you that you came and dwelt among us. Thank you that you have saved us and blessed us with that precious gift of our salvation. Thank you that we can reflect today and remind ourselves of our etern eternal destiny. And most of all, thank you that we can rejoice in that truth. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. As you remain in an attitude of prayer, I'd like to invite everyone to please rise. I don't know how the Spirit of God spoke to you this morning through this message, but I know everyone has needs. And so this is the time where we will be inviting you to come over. If you have any need, any need at all, we will be here to pray for you. Pastor Chad is here. I invite the deacons uh, who are also here to please go in front and uh, pray for whoever has any need. Shall we do that?